I hope that I met most of you guys by now, but if I haven't, my name is Taylor. Um, believe it or not, I was a student at Central one time. Yep. When I was uh, when I was a freshman, I got involved in Chi Alpha, and you know, just I'm just gonna make a quick plug here. I took discipleship class my first year <laughs> at Central, and I have to say, I have no regrets taking it. Even though I had a relatively busy quarter, um, I just got so much out of it. And it gave me, like, a ton of direction for how to grow in my faith with Jesus. From my point of view, you can't lose with either of the teachers, right, Cassidy or Brandon. One of them, um, I was the best man in his wedding. And the other one, I was the groom in her wedding. <laughs> so these, are, these guys are, like, some of the best teachers I know. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just always going to be good excuses for why not to take a Chi Alpha class. But I just want to encourage you guys that if you haven't taken it before, you should. You won't regret it. Um, and if you have taken it before, uh, before, then you know how awesome it is. And uh, why not just do a second lap? I mean, it's you'll probably get even more out of it the second time. Anyway, that's my encouragement. So there you go. You should do it. Um, to clarify, because I've been told pretty much every year um, since I've been here that I look fairly young, uh, I am no longer a student. Yep. I did graduate, and um, I'm on staff with Chi Alpha. Um, I'm so old, in fact, that, like I said, I've been married, married to Cassidy for seven and a half years. Um, we have two kids, Matthew and Sophie. If you heard any of my messages last quarter, you might remember uh, some wild tales of these little munchkins. You can just ask me anytime for the most recent crazy thing that they've done, and there will be something. Um, I was just about to tell a story, but I won't because it's just it's going to be distracting. So aside from spending lots of time with my beautiful family, um, I love to cook. I love reading. I play the piano. I love cold plunging in the dead of winter, right? Shout out to my fellow cold plungers. Yep. I have a ton of hobbies. Um, something that I don't get to do often enough but I really love is hiking. Um, I just really enjoy going on long, challenging hikes. But I really only end up getting to do this about once, maybe twice a year, uh, usually with a group of friends. And, you know, one year I was, um, I was leading a core, and I thought it would be really fun to take some guys on a hike. Uh, and everyone was pretty enthusiastic about it. But also, some slash most slash all of the guys um, didn't realize how long this particular hike was going to be. And um, including me, actually. Uh, I had never done the hike before. I kind of pretended like I had. Like, I didn't say that I hadn't, um, but I didn't say that I had. So that's just the basics of good leadership. <laughs> yep. Uh, but, yeah, so this was, a, this was a relatively intense trail with a lot of ups and downs, uh, both geographically and in terms of morale. Um, at one point, we took a short break, and I saw one of my core buddies, Nathan, uh, sprawled out, belly up arms stretched out like a starfish, kind of like limp on a large rock. Um, yeah, he was just so tired. Uh, but we did make it to the top. And once we got to the, t the summit, it was such a beautiful view. Everyone would just kind of didn't care about how hard the hike was, uh, including Nathan. They all said it was worth the hike. Uh, and then we just went back to my house, and I had brunch waiting for everyone. I mentioned I like to cook. It was an awesome day. Has anyone um, has anyone been on like an exhausting hike or or just like a really tiring but oddly fulfilling experience like that? Yeah, 
Yeah, totally. There's um, there was kind of a, a turning point in our core's bonding for that year, just having experienced something like that together. We kind of had some inside jokes. We just we couldn't shake the image of Nathan sprawled out on the ground. It was a great time. And memories like this are pretty hard to forget. Um, when you've experienced something incredible with other people, it really bonds you together. And that's a pretty common experience, I think, for probably most people in the world. Did you know that the Bible is full of people uh, with lives that are very different, but also very similar to ours? Like some, some differences, some small differences would be that they probably were wearing sandals a whole lot more. Um, they spoke different languages, they sacrificed animals, and they had more severely limited access to Wi-Fi. Some similarities, on the other hand, I'm sure they had a love of food, like me. Uh, a love of hiking and other shared experiences. I would be willing to bet that they had a desire to know their creator. They had a desire to live lives of meaning. And we're just going to get the chance to read about some of those type of people tonight. So if you're with us last week, you know that we're studying the book of Acts this quarter. Um, it's a great follow-up to our message series last quarter where we went through the Gospel of Matthew. You can kind of consider Acts a sequel to the Gospel, um, or better yet, just like, like the aftermath of the Gospel. So before we go any further, I'm just going to pray for our time tonight. Lord Jesus, uh, we trust you to speak to us. Um, thank you for giving us your word. Thanks for giving us these incredible accounts of what happened. Uh, what actually happened. Thanks that um, just from what you shared uh, through Brandon yes, uh, last week, that there's just like, there's so much evidence pointing to all these things actually happening. And so um, we thank you for having it recorded so that we can read from it and learn from it. And I just pray that you would teach us, teach us, um, open up our hearts and make us willing to receive whatever you have for us uh, from your Bible tonight. Amen. Bible passers, we're, um, come on up. We're going to be reading from the Bible tonight. Big surprise, as always. Um, yeah, we just really want you to have a Bible just so you can kind of like see what we're reading for yourself. So make sure you have one. Go ahead and raise your hand if you need one. Looks like a lot of people have them. That's great. If you don't, no shame. Um, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. So you can use the table of contents if you need. Just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In the New Testament, we'll be in chapter 2, uh, but actually just like stop at chapter 1, because we'll read a couple verses from 1. So Acts chapter 1, um, last week Brandon showed us how Jesus finished up his earthly ministry with a really complicated set of instructions for his disciples. Does anyone remember what those instructions were? Nope, that's all right. It went something like this, wait. Just wait. That was, those were the instructions, right? Really exciting stuff. Um, let's just take a second to back up a little bit, right? You may remember last quarter, or maybe you're, uh, you're brand new here, so let's just recap. Last quarter in Matthew, we read all about how Jesus completed his earthly ministry and his teachings by dying on the cross. And that death that he died was misunderstood by everyone involved and everyone who saw it happen. They did not realize that the Jewish Messiah had to die to fulfill their scriptures. Jesus was the new Passover lamb. 
And his death opened the way for freedom from bondage to sin and death for his people. And because he defeated death, he rose from the dead after being in the tomb for two days, three nights, and appeared to his disciples and tons of other people, explaining and showing him that his rule and reign was beginning. And with the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gives the disciples the task to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded them. And surely he'd be with them to the end of the age. Can't forget that. So this is, um, this is pretty much where Brandon left off. Acts 1-4 has Jesus saying, you might remember this, uh, Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. He's speaking to his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've had heard me speak about. Verse 5 says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You guys remember reading that last week? Every single gospel account has a version of this line. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have written, John baptized with water. Jesus is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And some version, some of these gospels say the Holy Spirit and fire. Pretty intense sounding stuff. Well, so far in the story, Jesus has not baptized anyone in the Holy Spirit, nor has he baptized them in fire or anything. Uh, so that's where we're picking up, right? Jesus ascends to his heavenly throne. His disciples are left chilling on the ground. An angel shows up and says, why are you staring up at the sky? He's coming back in a way. And uh, so they bounce and they go back to Jerusalem and they hang out in the house where they were staying. And then this is just like all the way. Here we go. Now we're in Acts chapter two, 10 days after Jesus left his disciples. Okay. Are you with me? Thank you. (laughs) We're going to read in Acts two. Starting in verse one, we'll go all the way through 13. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, because it was Pentecost. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? So how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? We got Parthians, Medes, and the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. All right, let's pause there. What is God up to, y'all? What's going on here? Uh, we're we're going to just break down this passage together. And I want to start by pointing out two specific images that are being used in the passage. 
We have fire and we have wind. Yep. These are classic Old Testament conceptions or images of God's presence. Fire and wind. So for the wind, the word wind, in both Hebrew and Greek, those are the languages the Bible's written in, um, the words also mean breath or spirit. So um, for example, <coughs> in Ezekiel 37, verse 9, it said, this is in the Old Testament, so Hebrew, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. This is just an example. So it says, the wor- uh, so the word for both breath and winds is the same word. It's the word ruach. Okay, everyone say ruach with me. Ruach. Yeah, g- great job on the, on the guttural, you know, the Okay. You guys just learned several Hebrew words for the price of one. Because that same word is used in the second, second, sec, second sentence of the Bible. Um, that sentence says, The earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Ruach was hovering over the waters. Okay? So, there you go. In Greek, which is what Acts was written in, it's the word pneuma. Say pneuma with me. Pneuma, not panuma. Always want to say that. Okay, congratulations again. You just learned three Greek words, several Greek words for the memory space of one. Uh, so in these ancient languages, the words for bre- uh, breath, for breeze, wind, spirit, they're all pretty interchangeable. So in our passage in Acts, when it says that the blowing of an intense wind came, it could also be translated the blowing of an intense spirit came, right? It's the word pneuma. Okay, now the word fire, right? We've, well, we've already heard about Jesus baptizing his disciples, right? In the, the pneuma and the pur, that's the Greek word for fire. You can say it if you want, pur. Yep, the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, let's take a look at the Old Testament real quick. The first time that God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus is in the form of a bush, that's on fire. Yep, it's a pretty iconic image. It's a burning bush. So this is kind of like a little fire, right? Well, maybe like it's a little little fire. Um, a little later on in the Exodus narrative, though, the fire is going to get bigger. God appears to the Israelites as a pillar of fire that guides them on their journey to Mount Sinai, right? Slightly bigger fire. Both times indicate the presence of God. Then we get to Exodus 19 and 20, and things ramp up a little bit. So uh, the Israelites finally get to Mount Sinai, and God appears again as fire. And let me just read how. Um, Exodus 19, verse 18 says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. That's the mountain they're supposed to hike up, by the way. Now, I mean, I mentioned I like hiking, Um, But I actually draw the line when the mountain is on fire and there's an earthquake. I I just won't do it. Um, And apparently the Israelites were similar. Uh, And this is kind of a, we're just talking about this story here because this is a little, this is kind of a conflicting moment in Israel's history because the whole point for them to come to this mountain was so that they could go up to meet with their God and receive their commissioning as a nation. Right, he's welcoming them into his presence. He's made it really abundantly clear. There's fire up there. It's God. 
I, you know, that's how it works, apparently. But they don't. It's a little anticlimactic. They, it's kind of a buzzkill. Like, they just can't summon up the courage to do it. And Moses tries to encourage them by saying, guys, I get that this is a bit intense, right? God is showing you his authentic self. And yeah, he's certainly to be feared, but he's also on your side. But the people end up staying at a distance, and they just send Moses up the mountain on their behalf. So these examples of the words fire and wind um, that we looked at in the Old Testament are just from a very few examples in the Old Testament. Fire and wind are very closely associated with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, last week, Brandon said, um, sometimes, I really love what he said. He said, sometimes we think the disciples never struggled with doubt, and so we shouldn't either. Uh, but then he, like, showed us a bunch of examples where the, they totally did doubt in Jesus. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. I wonder how the disciples felt about the Holy Spirit. Like, when Jesus said to them, John baptized you with water, but soon you'll be baptizing the Holy Spirit. How do you think they felt? Can I ask you, how do you feel about the Holy Spirit? Do you feel, like, excited and, like, ready to go? Maybe that's some of us, or maybe maybe you feel a little bit more uncomfortable or confused or un just even uncertain about the Holy Spirit. <coughs> uh, you know, I think we can be tempted to say about the disciples, um, well, they just lived in a different time, and uh, crazy stuff happened all the time. But they were used to it. But I would say that the Bible doesn't actually seem to tell that story. The Israelites in Exodus aren't just weirded out. They're terrified of the Spirit of God. Um, in the New Testament and in some other places, Paul, we see Paul has to encourage the churches. He encourages the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, to not quench the Holy Spirit. Quench, like as, as if you would quench a fire. Uh, so apparently this church was tempted to disengage from the Spirit. In Acts 7, verse 51, which we'll actually get to a little bit later in the quarter, um, a man named Stephen will accuse the Jewish religious leaders by saying, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So I don't think that the early Christians were any less hesitant or potentially unsure, at least some of them, in regards to the Holy Spirit than we are today. Let me ask you a question about these passages. In these passages, who has God shown himself to be? Um, here's what he's not. He is not a God that forces himself on his people. He actually gives them a remarkable amount of autonomy. At Sinai, he comes near and gives his people the opportunity to respond. In this scene in Acts that we just read, I think that the disciples had made up their mind to receive whatever Jesus had for them, right? They show God that they're ready by waiting and praying and asking. And he doesn't give himself any sooner. And the same goes for today. He won't force himself on you. Well, we believe that if you are following Jesus, that he has given you his spirit already. Uh, but as far as this full submersion, the baptism in the spirit, the kind that... Um, causes giddy, joyful words to come out of your mouth, I really think that you decide, right? So what, remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said that he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So 
who here has been baptized in water? Yep. When that happened, um, was it an intentional choice or was it completely out of your control? Like, you, you know, you just like accidentally fell in the water and popped out and we're like, wow, I guess I, that's my ba- I got baptized. Sweet. Right? Obviously not. It was, it was a deliberate decision. So Jesus won't baptize you in the Holy Spirit unless you're ready to get in the water. And I mean, honestly, we could, um, we could just spend the rest of our time discussing the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that it's not important to really understand what the Bible means when it's talking about spirit ba- baptism. But I actually, um, I actually don't want us to miss out on what happens because of the baptism. Right? So let's just keep reading, um, starting in verse 14. This is, a, this is a pretty big chunk. We'll split it up a little bit. But starting in verse 14, Acts 2, 14, it says that then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. No, this is what (laughs) was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Excuse me. Can we just pause here for a second? I just want to point out that um, just like what we did, we actually see Peter reaching back into his Bible, the Old Testament. Um, this time he's, he's looking at the prophet Joel, right? Peter's having a bit of a revelation moment. Um, the Holy Spirit's just making the, the scriptures click in his brain. <clears throat> so what does Joel say about the Holy Spirit? Well, he says he's going to be poured out on both men and women, young and old. Uh, There's going to be prophecy, dreams, visions, wonders in the sky, miraculous signs on the earth. Peter Peter believes that this moment that he just lived through with the wind and the tongues of fire and the speaking in tongues was all prophesied about by the prophet Joel centuries ago. And then he follows it up and preaches the gospel. So let's let's keep reading. Let's get Peter's gospel. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will fill me with joy in your presence. (coughs) Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. 
but he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of the sins, of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, thanks for hanging in there with me, guys. That was a lot of reading. Um, we are, we're not going to analyze every ounce of Peter's whole sermon because there's just so much richness here. It would take quite a while. Um, we already mentioned how Peter brings up the Old Testament prophet Joel to understand what's going on. And then he, he actually references a number of other passages in his Bible. He quotes David from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Um, now, if you're reading along, it might have these references in the footnotes of your Bible. Does anyone have that? Yep, a little note. Um, there is yet another reference being made to the Old Testament. This is one by the author Luke. It's Genesis 11. Does anyone have Genesis 11 in their footnote? No, it's not going to be there. Um, you won't actually see a, a scripture ref verse reference because there's no exact quote being taken from Genesis 11. However, there are some pretty overt similar narrative details between these two stories. So, one more time, we're just going to dip back into the OT. That's code for the Old Testament. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> All right, we're going to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, we have, we have the story of humanity that takes place um, during a time in primeval history. This is like extra ancient times. Um, at this time, all people speak one language. That would be sweet. Um, and in this story, they, uh, they rebel against their God by trying to usurp his authority. And then they end up being scattered uh, across the face of the earth. So some of you guys might know this story already. It's referred to as the Tower of Babel. Um, it's a very quick nine-verse story. So we're just going to read it together. Genesis 11, 1 through 9 the 11th chapter in the whole book, says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, 
Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There's the rebellion, by the way. The Lord had commanded them to spread out over the whole earth. They're settling, trying to, anyway. Continuing. But they weren't even close to the heavens. So the Lord had to come down to see the city that the tower and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, because one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then there will be no limit to the amount of evil they will be capable of. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, uh, from there over the, all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right. <coughs> this story may seem leagues apart from Acts 2. But I want to point out some similarities and a couple distinct differences. Um, and I'm going to do so using a table. So um, there should be a slide for this. Feel free to take a picture of this. So you don't have to write it all down, or you can. Um, and I'm just going to read through this uh, set of the set of descriptions about each story that we read. Starting with Babel in Genesis, <coughs> everyone's all together in one place. Right now, in, in Acts at Pentecost, they're all together in one place. In Genesis, they're all speaking one language. In uh, Acts, they're all speaking different languages. Back in Genesis, verse 4, they're all seeking personal fame and glory. And in Acts, uh, presumably, they're all there to seek um, God's glory. In Genesis, God descends to view humans. In Acts, the Holy Spirit descends and rests upon humans. In Genesis, the languages are confused. In Acts, the languages end up being shared. In Genesis, people separate and are scattered. And at the end of Acts, which we'll get to shortly, people unify in fellowship. Guys, what we just read about in Acts is the reversal of Babel. It's the reversal of Babel. Luke is trying to communicate, right? God is communicating that the formerly distinct and hostile nations are being unified through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains this in Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, hey, let me tell you about the mystery of Christ, okay, uh, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's all the nations of Babel, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that no one saw the full plan at Babel until now. It was always God's intention to bring unity to the nations, <clears throat> not that they would stay separate. Friends, it's hard to overstate the significance of this event at Pentecost. God is showing that the barriers and divisions between all people groups in the world have been torn down through the death of Jesus. And now he is sending his spirit to bring the unity that was previously impossible. National divisions are no match for the unifying spirit. And we might ask, you know, why then are all the nations still separate today? Why are there still wars? Well, a little later on in Ephesians, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit 
through the bond of peace. So apparently humans still have a choice if they want to reject the Holy Spirit. We are capable, and boy am I capable, of rejecting the spirit that brings unity. Let me just pause and ask, what are you learning about the Holy Spirit tonight? What are you learning about the Holy Spirit through these passages tonight? What does the Holy Spirit have in store for you? Do you find yourself having a posture of welcome or resistance toward the Holy Spirit? And if so, um, how do you think he might want you to change that posture? The final section of our passage tonight is going to show us what kind of unifying work that the Holy Spirit is capable of. And it's a pretty remarkable scene. So let's go to the last section in Acts 2, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As we begin to close out our teaching for tonight, I want us to observe five components of this early group of believers, this early church. Um, These are devoted people, so it says. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, which we can assume is a reference to the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded of you. So this early group of believers is devoted to discipleship, to prayer, to fellowship, to worship, to mission. These are the hallmarks of the Spirit-empowered church. Discipleship, prayer, fellowship, worship, and mission. And these are the components, um, these, these components of the church won't stop in chapter 2. We'll actually be able to trace these elements for the rest of the quarter as we read through Acts together. I want to ask us tonight, having seen what the Spirit does to a community, uh, what kind of community are we being shaped into? What kind of community do you want? I think when I was a student, um, I may have heard this question and been tempted to think, how would I have any impact on this community? Right, like isn't that like a staff's job or maybe my facilitator's job? But what I want to say to those of us who may be thinking that tonight is that you actually have more ability to impact this community than you could possibly realize. If you're seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit, you're promised empowerment. If we are all seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit, we're promised unity. I want to read uh, one more short passage tonight. This is, this is from Acts 19, much later on. Um, by this time, the church has expanded quite significantly, and there are churches kind of starting to pop up all over. And Paul visits a church in the city of Ephesus, and he sa- it says that he asked them, hey, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus? They answered, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. And then Paul says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing his message, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. I said before, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't want to assume that I know where each and every one of you guys are at when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I know many of you personally who are so excited about diving deeper with him. Um, maybe you heard something tonight that inspires you to like want to go even deeper. Maybe you're like the believers in Ephesus who had, n- had never heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit until tonight. I mean, that was me about till about 10 years ago um, when I took this up class, by the way. Um, I, that was the first time that I heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was really encouraged that the Ephesian believers also hadn't heard about it right away. Um, I had to really pray and wrestle with the Spirit because it was just all so new to me. I actually prayed for an entire quarter before I asked to be baptized in the Spirit. I believe that tonight the Holy Spirit wants to bless us. Do you believe that? Yeah, Peter says that this gift is for every person that the Lord calls. We believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for everyone. So as we seek to apply what we read tonight, um, here are just some considerations. And the worship team can start coming up now. Here's some thoughts. In asking the question, where am I at with the Holy Spirit? If you're hesitant or nervous, uh, maybe ask, what step can I take to move toward a deeper relationship with the Spirit? If I'm ready for more, how can I seek a deeper partnership with the Spirit? If I'm ready for spirit baptism, find someone to pray for and ask expectantly. One last thing that I want to say is that spirit baptism is not a measure of maturity. I've, I've known people who have received the baptism who uh, weren't very old in their faith and weren't super mature. I've also known people who uh, have prayed for it constantly for months, even years, before finally receiving it. You know, and just there's one thing that's for sure, and that is that we never want to assume that we know the plans and the timing of God. We never want to assume that we know the plans and the timing, the exact timing of God. I'll be totally transparent. I don't know how it all works. I just know what I've seen and what scripture says. So if you're feeling a tugging at your heart, and I have a feeling that some of you guys are feeling that tugging. If you're feeling a tugging at your heart to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, don't leave tonight without taking at least a step toward receiving it. As we close, um, would you guys actually just stand with me? You can sit down in a minute, but would you stand with me as we pray as we go into our time of worship? And would you put your hands out just like this, palms up in front of you? Um, This is kind of a posture of receiving, right? So I'm going to pray. God, thank you for who you are. I am so grateful uh, that you are a patient and generous God. 
I'm so grateful that I can trust you and you only have good things for me. Holy Spirit, would you draw us closer tonight? Fill us with excitement and anticipation like the disciples. Would you just give us genuine hearts to receive from you? We open ourselves up to what you want to do. Spirit, I ask that you would move mightily tonight. Start right now. Would you bring miraculous healing to those who need it tonight? Would you give visions to those of us in this room? Would you give us other gifts of the Spirit? Would you turn our hearts to you and what you're doing tonight? Amen.